Purple Heart. Nice left. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. By 2014, the war in Afghanistan will be over. Nice left. Well, you know, general is not necessarily a general. Uh, nope, no weapons over there. He may be a communist. Nice left. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Eyes Left. This is your host, Mike Preisner. This is your uh, co-host, Spencer Rapone, and we have a special guest with us here today, Jasper Craven. Jasper, say hello. Hello. Jasper uh, has been doing some great work covering the privatization of the VA, and so we wanted to have him on today to kind of give an expert view of the stuff that Spencer, you and I have been witnessing going on from the inside. But Jasper, you've been putting out some great work. You are, uh, the, your latest article is for The Intercept, but you're doing reporting covering military and veterans issues for uh, a number of publications. So tell us a little bit about the work you're doing in, in general. Yeah, so I've been covering the Department of Veterans Affairs as a freelancer for the past two years or so. Um, and I contribute to the New York Times at War section, Politico, Reveal, The Nation, Washington Monthly. Uh, and as you said, I just had my first piece in The Intercept. Uh, really got involved on the VA beat because there aren't many folks covering it. I mean, the VA is the second largest agency to DOD, but uh, I wasn't seeing a lot of good media coverage out there. And there's been a lot going on under Trump. And so that's sort of what what got me uh, got me excited to, to cover it. Yeah, do you have any um, particular personal connection to the military or anything, or what got you interested in just in, in the, the veteran stuff? When I was, uh, I'm from Vermont originally, and back in 2014, I was in Washington stringing for a Vermont newspaper when this big scandal erupted at a VA hospital in Phoenix. Uh, the sort of Cliff Notes version is vets were not accessing timely treatment and administrators were essentially putting them on secret wait lists so that their mm -hmm. stats wouldn't be noticed by national administrators. Uh, mm -hmm. And I tracked Bernie's efforts in Washington as chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee to sort of remediate the problems there. Uh, and, I, so, and I was just sort of, that was my introduction to the VA and, you know, Bernie's uh, advocacy for universal health care is closely intertwined and largely influenced by his experience uh, at VA. Um, the VA gets a pretty bad rap and many VA hospitals are struggling, but by and large, the VA outperforms the private sector on almost every metric. And so I just found it really fascinating to uh, examine this huge uh, sprawling department that while it has a lot of issues is really a sort of beacon for progressive policy in many ways. And so that's sort of what, what got me interested in the VA and um, I've covered some other issues since then but, but decided to, to go back on the beat full time just because of the, the big privatization push that's happening right now. And through your, your work, too, I mean, you're getting you're getting inside the VA hospitals, you're talking to VA patients, you're getting kind of the full experience of, of what it's like to to be served there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's there's an old adage that if you've been to one VA hospital, you've you've been to one VA hospital. And so, <laughs> you know, many of the folks I've spoken to have had really fantastic care at the VA and um, I think it's, it's crucial to highlight that work, largely because 
the VA does a pretty bad job of highlighting its own successes. I mean, you look at the private healthcare industry and you've got NYU Langoni and the Cleveland Clinic and, you know, Big Pharma just spending literally billions of dollars per year on advertising and PR efforts to, you know, sort of like burnish their images and reputations, even though these places also make serious mistakes, have folks, uh, you know, going into bankruptcy after surgery or, you know, and, and as we all know, uh, those of us who use the civilian healthcare system, wait times can be incredibly long and the whole system is is really just convoluted and difficult to deal with. So a lot of my work has been focusing on the the successes of the VA, what patients really appreciate about the system. But, you know, as well, uh, I've also focused on some of the issues um, which really stem from Congress's reluctance to, uh, you know, pump money into the VA and uh, following the 2003 invasion. I mean, DOD just has been getting so much money, but the requisite support for vets coming back home has has not happened. Yeah, well, it stands out to me uh, when you say all this, Jasper, two things. Number one, that the candidate who has the most anti-imperialist policy agenda actually tends to support uh, veterans the most effectively. As you said, you know, for many years now, he's been one of the few that has advocated on behalf of the VA and trying to um, correct some of the issues uh, that result um, from Congress's inaction. But the second piece regards the fact that the VA itself is not the issue. It's the reluctance on behalf of, you know, the right-wing lawmakers who do everything they can to either subvert the VA or try to privatize it out. And then, of course, you know, that redounds to the patients suffering the worst. So if anything, the VA should be a model of how healthcare could be, you know, for the majority of the people in this country. But unfortunately, like you said, because they really don't market themselves too well, it gets seen as this dysfunctional mess, which really, even despite all of its issues right now, it still, as you said, outperforms the private sector in many regards. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, I mean, the Democratic Party also hasn't done a very good job of defending the VA. I mean, the House and Senate Veterans Affairs Committees are sort of seen as like the place where backbenchers go who don't have high political aspirations. And Mm -hmm. because of that, Mm -hmm. you know, there's Mm -hmm. just not a lot of policy knowledge or uh, sort of, you know, uh, no no political stars really engage in in veterans issues. Yeah, you know, um, I'd like to get on a a Bernie segue for a second since you brought it up before we get into the, the main stories here. But, you know, it's interesting you brought him up as kind of this main advocate because I was just going through... You know, there's this new report that just came out from the Pentagon about the the burn pit situation. You know, like we've for a long time since 2004, uh, veterans have been trying to raise those issues at the VA, and the VA has been tasked with studying this issue of the effects of the burn pits, which were run by uh, Kellogg, Brown and Root, uh, Halliburton subsidiary uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, causing you know serious health problems. In fact, I I found out recently that a, a friend from the Winter Soldier panel I was on, Joshua Castile, a longtime IVAW member. You know, he was a Abu Ghraib interrogator. He became a conscientious objector, refused to keep doing interrogation. So to punish him, they put him on burn pit duty. He uh, recently died of lung cancer at the age of like 35 from the effects of the burn pits. And the the VA approach to it is uh, to do studies, right? I mean, they get all this money from the government and they just do studies to determine if there is a problem for which they need to provide treatment and compensation. Uh, And the same was true with Gulf War illness and Agent Orange syndrome. And it says the VA just gets money to conduct these studies 
And uh, I thought about it because you brought up Bernie. And when you go back and look at these old congressional hearings where the VA is getting grilled about, are you just doing studies or are you going to provide treatment? It was Bernie Sanders who was there like yelling at them, being like, how have we spent millions and millions of dollars doing these studies and you still cannot give an answer? Air burn pits a problem. Is Gulf War illness a problem? Even is Agent Orange a problem? Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, because budget dollars are so precious within the VA right now, there is a sort of reticence to, you know, acknowledge these issues because then, yeah, there just becomes a huge new healthcare need and, and the VA, you know, isn't sure if it will get the requisite support to to sort of, you know, take in Blue Water Navy veterans who claim that they got sick from Agent Orange or burn pit victims who, you know, have pretty, you know, I mean, the burn pit registry is gigantic. I, uh, mm-hmm. I'm from Vermont and I've covered issues inside the Vermont Air National Guard of folks who, you know, have gotten really sick from burn pits. I mean, the evidence is there. But yes, the VA has and is sort of, you know, dilly-dallying on a lot of these these key issues and I think sort of money is the main factor here I mean I think ideally there would there would be some sort of mechanism keeping DOD accountable for some of this stuff too right like I mean it's it's DOD that's that's getting these guys sick and so there should be more a, a larger part of the DOD budget that goes into assisting the the healthcare needs of vets because the VA budget is uh, is precious That's right. And we're going to get in, I think, deeper into the kind of overall issue of the VA and the privatization and what the use of the funds and all that. But but first, we wanted to talk about your latest article uh, for The Intercept, which is titled Abusing Those Who Serve. So it's it's quite obvious. Um, I mean, Jasper, you went coast to coast and in between. And it's fascinating to me how, you know, you could have a uh, a VA police department in D.C. or a VA police department in Seattle but there seems to be these uh, recurring themes of either um, dereliction of duty on the part of the leadership or just blatant incompetence. And then you have those who are trying to either, you know, uh, file grievances or at least bring it to the attention of the upper echelons. And it usually just gets either swept up under the rug or those who are trying to uh, blow the whistle end up getting persecuted and they very much can lose their job or get in trouble unless, you know, something like Congress intervening on their behalf. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, you know, I have not really covered law enforcement before uh, digging into this piece. And I, but I was really struck at how many VA cops spoke with me on the record and, you know, described pretty egregious uh, abuses by by their colleagues. Generally, there's sort of this blue wall of silence, and you know it, it can be really difficult to crack into a police department. But almost all of the cops I spoke to are veterans, and so I think there was a real sense of anger that emerged after seeing their brothers and sisters in arms just getting mistreated so blatantly. I mean, there's you know there's obviously uh, ways to remediate issues of abuse inside the military through UC Uniform Code of Military Justice. That's mm-hmm. not always it, yeah. perfectly uh, implemented. But, you know, just to see like this abuse with impunity, I think really upset a lot of folks. And so they, they weren't went aggressively after it, tried to get Office of Inspector General investigations launched. They went to the FBI. They went to top VA administrators. But yeah, nothing really happened um, in many of these cases. And the oversight mechanisms in place are just pretty clunky. Uh, the, the VA police, uh, 
was pretty much just like you know a group of uh mall cops with batons up until 2000 2001 then after 9-11 there was a you know big sort of rush to arm the cops there was this assumption that terrorists would target veterans <laughs> hospitals and so like there was this huge buildup of 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 a force without the requisite you know oversight mechanisms to accompany that so it's uh yeah i mean it's you never really think there's a law enforcement angle to the department of veterans affairs but when i was doing some other reporting on the local level i just kept hearing stories about like you know pretty fucked up police abuses and uh that's what got me you know looking into this and uh it seems as if congress may now take some efforts to reform the police add more oversight that sort of thing but you know since the piece came out i've I've heard another dozen or so stories from uh, either vets who were, say they were abused or cops who, you know, feel their department's pretty rotten. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a wild issue, and uh, I hope Congress takes, takes what we presented seriously. Yeah, I wanted to quote from your article really quick so people get a sense of, of what you covered here. So in this piece on The Intercept, uh, you write, after reviewing internal police reports, legal documents, and local news reports spanning the past 10 years, The Intercept has identified dozens of credible allegations that VA cops in every corner of the United States have neglected standard police procedures, violated patients' constitutional rights, or broken the law. In the course of their duties, they have beaten veterans, bungled sensitive investigations, falsified arrest reports, conducted improper searches, and ignored basic procedures like reading citizens their Miranda rights. But also for your piece, you actually spoke to like individual veterans who who dealt with some of this brutality and and kind of the the backlash from trying to report it. Yeah, I did. Um, And, you know, some of those were patients who were beaten by cops after coming in seeking help. Some were veterans, now VA cops, who witnessed improper behavior and tried to blow the whistle only to be retaliated against. I mean, we collected, I think, more than 50 cases over the last 10 years. And like I said, I've got probably another dozen or so that I'm following up on now. And, you know, I mean, it's just a really, it can be a really toxic combination. You know, if a vet's coming into a VA hospital and they have PTSD, they're not always going to be, you know, calm, cool, and collected. Uh, and so you would hope that the police would understand that, would be adequately trained in de-escalation techniques and could settle the situation. But much of the time, in fact, you know, basically medical staff who do have this training would be dealing with patients and trying to calm them down only to have, you know, the big beefy cops come in and mm. just start, you know going after these guys it's pretty egregious and the infractions that merited you know these beatings that i found were relatively minor i mean there was one cop in kansas city who beat and killed a vet after this guy was just driving on the wrong side of the road into the hospital like there's i mean it's 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 pretty wild and and that that case has been under wraps for a year or so the the department has not really commented on what happened but like you know another vietnam 
vet at another hospital went through the metal detector and it went off and then he just got thrown to the ground and you know got a shoulder injury that required surgery another vet a vietnam vet was attacked essentially after bringing his service dog into a hospital against you know departmental rules so it's not as if you know there's wild vets coming in with guns blazing or threatening to to hurt people much of the time these vets haven't really done anything at all and not only are they beaten but much of the time they're slapped with federal charges like you know resisting arrest or assaulting a police officer that can get them sent to jail for you know a year or more what well, it it strikes me as um it's almost like a microcosm of the larger structural issues uh, with police in this country because it seems many of these VA cops, they, they view whatever health facility they're at as like their own little private fiefdom right. of, of sorts. And, and every one of these stories is just another example of the cops instigating or antagonizing a patient who's either dealing with some type of mental health issue, and many times related to post-traumatic stress disorder, or it's just someone who might have done a very minor infraction, such as parking in the wrong uh, spot, or like you said, driving on the wrong side of the road. And then there's like zero escalation of force, and these cops just swarm either these patients or, towards the end of the article, nurses who are trying to advocate on behalf of their patients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there. Were, I mean, there were stories that didn't make it in the piece about uh, medical staff who were just trying to vouch for their patients and, and got in scuffles with the cops. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with you, Spencer, that it's just like, a, you know, it's a, a microcosm of kind of the, the larger situation in U.S. society. And, and I think that, uh, I mean, the reason I think, Jasper, you found such widespread police abuse at the VA is because, you know, the, the composition of VA patients. I mean, you know, like if when you people first get out of the military, they use their VA care while they're getting on their feet and stuff. But generally, if you keep going to the VA through the rest of your life, it's probably because you're low income. You're poor. You know, if you end up with a decent job, making some money, you just you kind of go to you go into the private healthcare care world for various reasons. But if you go anyone who goes into a VA, I mean, especially in here in Los Angeles, what I've seen, it's it's largely uh, it's largely poor, low income people. Um, a lot of homeless people uh, use the VA services, largely people of color. I mean, I think that uh, African-American men are like kind of the largest uh, composition of people that that use the VA services. And you're dealing with a lot of people with, of course, as you said, mental health issues, drug issues, people going in to see their social worker and things like that. It's the same communities who typically suffer disproportionately from police violence in society in general. And it just goes to show you that even if you totally conform to this system, and follow that serving your country path, you will still be brutalized in the same way based on race and class. This uh, elevated status in society you get by serving is just what they tell you to get you to go die overseas. Um, I was actually surprised to hear that you said that a lot of the cops were vets themselves because like I felt, I feel that there's this, you know, cops like wannabe troops so bad. And like the whole police culture now is like, they are special operator soldiers and things like that, which is just like a total like fake fantasy that they have. And so uh, there's always been kind of this animosity between cops and like actual veterans, like actual troops. Um, and so I'm sure that kind of like feeds in uh, in some way. I think you, you hit the nail on the head, like absolutely that, uh, a lot of cops think of themselves as like paramilitary forces in part because the Pentagon has just like outfitted them as such. I mean, the VA police 
is one of many departments that's just been like outfitted with like tear gas and night vision equipment and like big guns and you know riot shields and everything else and uh so when you have all that equipment the, you know cops will likely want to use that equipment the, the one thing i just we kind of ha have gotten at but explicitly it really is you know we said it's a, a microcosm but it, it also goes back to just this post 9-11 insanity mm -hmm. we're, we're all um bearing witness to to this day i mean I, I did a little brief like historical reading just to make sure I got the dates and the facts right regarding this. And, and as I understand it, the the VA police force was stood up in 1973. And you said, Jasper, that in 91 was when they became an actual federal law enforcement agency. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And then throughout the 90s, there were discussions on arming them with actual, you know, whether pistols or what have you, like nine millimeter uh, handguns. And I think some VA hospitals did get armed, but then, it, like as you said, really ten years later, two thousand one, post nine eleven, is when it just went off the rails. Everyone got a sidearm, but not only that, like as Mike said and you said as well, like the uh, the night vision devices, um, plate carriers, <laughs> and, and so on and what? so forth. I think it was uh, code ten thirty three. Is that what it is? Yeah. Where uh, you know, I mean, this is across the nation. Law enforcement agencies get. Uh, you know, surplus military equipment to use uh, as they please, more or less. And, and the fact that this is happening with a police force that's designed to be, you know, present in hospitals, you know, uh, <laughs> it is just astounding. Doing night vision raids in the right. VA hospital. Right. <laughs> right. Well, very, really important story, Jasper, and appreciate you doing the work, the, the really hard work to, to report on it and expose it because there's really not much I haven't really seen anything else out there about this story. And so we want to uh, segue into this kind of the larger issue we wanted to talk to you about, which is this ongoing privatization of the VA hospitals. Uh, of course, this was something that was going on prior to Trump coming in office. I mean, in 2014 is when the Veterans Choice Program began, which was like the outsourcing of uh, VA care to private doctors, as you know, you know, now I think 40% of all outpatient doctor uh, visits are routed into private care from what used to be VA care. I actually just had a really recent experience with this that was really kind of shocking because I've been using the VA since I got out in 2006. And I've never had this experience where I had a, an injury recently and I had to call and make various appointments for, for chiropractor, for uh, pain management, like all these different things, right? And every office I called, they're like, we can get you an appointment in three months at the VA. And I was in like serious pain. So that was a long time. Or we can get you in next week at a private provider through the Veterans Choice Program. And that's what every single department told me. They said, we can get you in three months at the VA or in next week and Veterans Choice. That's kind of what's been brewing since 2014. But now Trump came in and he signed this Veterans Affairs Mission Act, which is like this big overhaul. And in fact, passed the biggest budget in VA history, the biggest VA budget in its history. But I wanted to get your take on that this new budget, this new massive, not a massive VA budget, but the biggest budget the VA has ever had. What is that really going to look like for VA care? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions about how the budget will be broken down because the precursor to mission, as you mentioned, the Choice Act was only supposed to be a temporary measure. They put $10 billion in for private care as a way to sort of 
you know, offer quick access to vets while more fundamental wait time issues at the VA were addressed. Those fundamental wait time issues were not addressed. And now, you know, sort of the, the vision with mission is that more and more veterans care will be supplemented in the private sector. So there, there's really only been one assessment by the Congressional Budget Office uh, on mission. And basically what it said was Congress in writing mission totally under budgeted how much this was going to cost. And so mm. the VA budget passed now has, you know, an appropriation for uh, the Veterans Health Administration, which is sort of the, you know, the healthcare side of things. Then there's the Veterans Benefits Administration, which like helps administer the GI Bill and other sort of like comp and pen visits to determine eligibility and that sort of thing. But it appears as if based on how the department wrote the final eligibility rules for mission, that maybe half, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to tell, but tens of billions of dollars will be now going into private sector pockets. You know, a lot of Democrats, virtually every one of them, except for Bernie Sanders, supported this law because they were promised right. that the rules for outsourcing to the private sector would be very narrow. So, you know, basically your doctor was supposed to say, okay, I think it's in the best medical interest that you go to the private sector. And oh, also, you know, the VA promised that they were going to ensure that the private sector was providing wait time and quality data to vets. So they could like look at a chart and be like, oh, my local VA has a 20 day wait. The private sector has a 25 day wait. However, because, you know, my local VA has higher quality metrics than the private sector, I'm going to stay in the VA. Like this was supposed to put the put the uh, choice into the veterans hands. But private healthcare interests have vociferously opposed those statutes. They have refused uh, by and large to release any sort of information to the VA on how long it takes to get in and whether their quality is high. And so uh, the VA has basically acquiesced to that. And because Trump's folks are running the VA, it seems in practice that they're, they're pretty much just, you know, funneling veterans into the private sector without following the spirit of what this law mandated. You know, the, the law was first implemented just a few weeks ago. And so you know, I think we'll know a lot more in a year from now when we understand actually how much was pumped into the private sector. But clearly, this is going to be a huge financial boon for, for private health care. That's right. And, you know, Bernie wasn't alone in opposing it, but was basically alone. The Senate voted 92 to 5 uh, yeah. for the bill. So yeah, the yeah. only four others other than Bernie were in opposition to it. But but yeah, that's the catch. I mean, it's it's uh, it's routing $50 billion, it's $50 billion in spending to private hospitals and doctors to supplement this, right? But the catch is, is that one of the ways that they're going to pay for this $50 billion in new funds for the private sector to supplement the, the shortcomings of the VA, 
they're going to do it by cutting VA services. They're actually cutting the budget of mental health services, of homeless services, of women's services at the VA in order to outsource it versus, I mean, that they, the way it was pitched was it's going to be extra money that will go into the private sector to help supplement where the VA can't keep up. But in fact, it's taking money away from the VA now and giving it to these private companies. Right. Absolutely. That will only grow. And so basically what happens is by taking money away from the VA, I mean, this is obvious, right? Like you take money away from the VA, services decline, fewer doctors stay on because they're not getting paid very well. And then the, the, the department really just erodes quite quickly until the argument that the VA is terrible has more legitimacy. Like you can just find all of these examples of substandard care, more scandals will pop up in the press. And um, I mean, you can see in a not so distant future a, a fully privatized VA that's sort of more like TRICARE where like they are basically a payer, basically like a, they, they just act as a health insurance entity where they pay the private sector and coordinate appointments for vets. There's another part of the Mission Act that also did not raise nearly enough hackles with, with Democrats in which uh, basically like a BRAC style commission will be established in a couple of years. Basically, BRAC is uh, sort of like an acronym for what the Pentagon did a couple years ago when they assessed their sort of infrastructural imp uh, footprint and were like, okay, this is a base we don't need or like this is a base we can sort of, you know, pare down in, in resources and staffing. So basically, under Trump's appointees, there will be this huge assessment of the VA's footprint. And if they decide, oh, this, this VA hospital in Kansas doesn't need to be around or like we can like lay off staff and sort of make it less of a, you know, vital uh, healthcare resource because there's, you know, a new private hospital in the community, then they'll do that. You know, there's a, there's a lot of concern from veterans advocates that this will mean really vital hospitals in rural areas uh, shutting down and veterans really not not having a place to go that can actually meet their needs. I mean, that, that's the other thing is like the private healthcare industry just doesn't know shit about PTSD or, right. you know, Gulf War illness or like ways to spot various maladies of war. And so there's just a lot of big questions of like how veterans would truly get access to good you know, mental health care uh, and like prosthetics care, those sorts of things that are very specialized to their needs. Yeah, that's right. And I think that uh, something that really speaks to who the two sides are. I mean, the, the Veterans for Peace and American Legion are running this campaign called Save the VA, which has the slogan, stop privatization, fix fund and fully staff the VA, right? Pointing out that there's like 35,000 medical position vacancies at the VA, 15,000 non-medical position vacancies at the VA. You know, they're, they're intentional. It's like they do anything else. They intentionally understaff it, say it's failing, privatize it. But there's another side, right? There's an organizational a grouping that's advocating for the privatization and saying how it's, it's great and how it's going to help everyone. It's called the Concerned Veterans of America, which is out there giving the other side about why this is helping. It's funded by the Koch brothers. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially an AstroTurf organization that doesn't really hardly have any actual like veteran rank and file membership. Right. It's mostly just this uh, this vessel for um, channeling Coke policies or uh, Coke advocated for policies that, you know, redound to the benefit of those who are trying to privatize the VA and who have privatization at the center of all of their uh, policy agendas. With that in mind, and I'm glad, you know, we're attacking this in like the general sense, but Jasper, you have a piece 
you know, that you did, I think, with, with Suzanne Gordon last August. And the issues with treating PTSD, and we've kind of gotten at the point, but I think we could go a little bit more in depth on how the, in, uh, the ineffectual nature with which uh, the VA, as it's, you know, being privatized or, you know, uh, those who are trying to privatize it are steering it in a certain direction, um, the inability for uh, the VA to um, deal with the PTSD crisis and the fact that 20 veterans are killing themselves a day is kind of emblematic of the issues with privatizing it in the first place. And it kind of reveals who the actors are behind these scenes, such as uh, the concerned veterans uh, uh, of America, but also uh, the one who's actually running the show right now, uh, the Wisconsin beer mogul, um, Jake Leinenkugel. Uh, who Trump appointed in 2017 to advise on veterans issues. Can you say a little bit more about uh, privatization with relation to PTSD and what you've uncovered in that regard, uh, Jasper? Yeah, so one of Trump's big promises to veterans was that he was going to fix the the suicide crisis. And, you know, I mean, it should be noted that Trump won a historic uh, margin of veterans in 2016. So, like, in 2008, for instance... You know, you got Obama and McCain. McCain won veterans by a nine-point margin. Trump won veterans by a 21-point margin. And this is despite all of, you know, the attacks on the Gold Star families and making light of military sexual assault and everything else. So, I mean, you know, Trump ran a very, very uh, savvy campaign to entice veterans, one that was supported uh, on the ground level by concerned veterans of America. I mean, these Kokeback forces really brought a historic military and veteran uh, turnout in 2016. But anyways, Trump gets in and like, who does he decide to fix the veterans uh, PTSD crisis? A beer mogul from Wisconsin. Great. So um, yeah, the guy's name is Jake Leinenkugel. And just really quickly, but what do you mean by beer mogul? So his previous experience before now being in charge of like our mental health care at the VA, what, what do you mean by beer mogul with his previous job or current job in addition to this? Oh, I think there's a big beer company in Wisconsin <laughs> called Lining Kugel Brewing Company, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Now it's owned by Miller Coors, but but I guess Lining Kugel, I mean, Lining Kugel is certainly it. getting a paycheck. Yeah, let's well see. Well qualified then. I mean, this guy is like a, like a Simpsons character. He should have been voiced by <laughs> Phil Hartman. Yeah, right. Something. Yeah, like the monorail salesman. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so uh, he is running this commission that should, uh, that should be ending pretty soon, actually. They've had a number of hearings sort of nestled in weird like hotel basements across the country um and one of his chief uh advisors on the commission by the way is um a guy named Cass and Spiro who before coming to VA served at Concerned Veterans of America so you can you know the connections are pretty uh obvious here there's a number of CVA folks who came into VA after Trump was elected but This commission has been tasked with evaluating the VA's approach to PTSD. And, you know, the VA's approach to PTSD is far from perfect. As we know, you know, the crisis has not abated in any significant way in the last few years. Um, I mean, you know, if you get to the VA 
and you receive treatment, you're less likely to uh, commit suicide than if you never get to the VA. However, you know, there's really only three approved psychotherapies for PTSD, which aren't by any means universally effective. The VA also really fucked up by like overprescribing opioids, which they've gotten better at and benzos and, you know, all of these other really bad drugs. So in theory, this commission could make some good uh, some good recommendations which will be implemented and it's unclear what exactly the recommendations will be because it's sort of a black box. But I went to some of the meetings and spoke to a lot of people and looked at the lobbying and basically Leinenkugel, who has no scientific background, has really just, you know, fallen in love with these real wacky snake oil salesmen who are selling you know, like mind zapping technology on the promise it, it, you know, cures PTSD. You mean literal mind zapping? Literal mind zapping technology. Like magnets on your head type. Yes, yes. Magnets on your head. This mind zapping technology, by the way, was debunked like a decade ago in this huge DOD study. Um, And a lot of people at the VA thought that this would finally kill these guys and, you know, get them out of out of just constantly lobbying the VA, but, you know, Lining Kugel said in a meeting I attended that basically he'd been lobbied on it for the past few months, and, you know, he didn't care what the scientists said. He thinks it's totally legit. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like, there, a lot of a lot of these, like, PTSD, these these sort of, like, weird uh, administers of weird PTSD technology, it's, it's really dubious stuff. Um... There was, you know, like one of the one of the um, companies used to basically put vets in this like cage that would spin on an axis and you would basically just get like thrown around like a fucking fair ride. And that was supposed to like just like jiggle your brain around and cure your PTSD. I would say like the Gravitron, like at the county fair. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's pretty much what it is. <laughs> your brain's just out of alignment. You know what I mean? Yeah, you realign yeah. your brain and your head, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, it's really wild stuff. And like whenever the VA experts get in to testify, they say, this is bad. Do not do this. This is dangerous. We need to just like be investing more money in research into evidence-based treatments. Like the VA has a national center for PTSD that is well, relatively well-funded and is trying to find new, uh, more efficacious treatments that have evidence behind it. That's right. Well, because VA psychologists have been complaining about this, right? I mean, yeah. you found that they're actually mad that this guy now is in charge and, try, and trying to force all these treatments that they actually kind of have to adapt. Right, right. And, and under Trump, uh, the VA has set up pilot program. So like one of the, another one of the weird PTSD treatments is called hyperbaric oxygen, which is basically where, I mean, it's crazy. It's like some alien shit. They put you in a chamber (laughs) and then uh, fill the chamber with like pure oxygen. And that is supposed to treat PTSD. Yeah, you know, is that the photo for your article on Reveal News? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, so I, so for, for listeners, I mean, you should go to revealnews.org, and this article is titled VA's Mental Health Care Crisis Draws Private Firms Pitching Dubious PTSD Treatments. It's your article from August 2018 with Suzanne Gordon, but the main photo is these five veterans sitting in like what looks like a spaceship or submarine or something with these big rings around their necks and it looks like they're in a, you know, looks like they're underwater or something. And, and it's just like, what could this 
possibly, I was looking at it being like, what could this possibly, possibly be? But you're saying it's like some weird oxygen chamber. Yeah. And they've, I and mean, this is for mental health problems. Yeah. Yeah. And there's like even smaller ones, like little, you know, pill shaped tubes that they stick you in and then you, you, you're administered the, uh, the treatment sort of individually. But, and, and by the way, these are incredibly expensive devices, um, like the brain right. zapping stuff, this hyperbaric oxygen, tens of thousands of dollars to just install these things. And uh, so it's, you know, it's a huge boon to these companies. And a number of VA hospitals have set up this equipment in hospitals uh, under the Trump administration, which has loosened sort of guidelines over evidence-based PTSD treatments. Another sort of problematic thing is that one of the members of this commission who will be helping to write the guidelines of how VA should focus on PTSD in the coming years works at University of Pennsylvania, which oddly enough has been endowed with this huge program to study hyperbaric oxygen. So like there's a seems to be a clear conflict of interest there and that hasn't really been acknowledged. Also, the cover commission statute says that, you know, everybody on the commission should have a deep scientific background in mental health care. That is also not the case. Um, So, yeah, this is just sort of like one of those weird Trumpian things where science is thrown out the door, political patronage reigns supreme. And, you know, there will likely be adverse impacts on veterans who are seeking mental health care and are desperate for something. Yeah, you know, this is something that we've been seeing happen, especially in mental health care for a long time. I mean, I even remember, you know, 10 or so years ago, they they introduced, you know, a private outsourcing of, of this new PTSD treatment. And it was just it was essentially a video game on a big screen where you got like a uh, you got like a fake M16 rifle that had like a pneumatic air pump in it. So it would recoil when you pulled the trigger and you would just shoot this big guys popping up on this big screen. And the whole idea was, oh, it'll de- if you have combat trauma, it will desensitize you to your combat trauma when you relive it in this like controlled, safe setting. And it was, it was obviously a stupid, insane, ridiculous idea that some private company came up with and then just got a bunch of money to roll out in all of these army bases around, around the country. It was really just laughed off. But, like it, it, but that was like kind of the early stages of it. And now it's kind of under Lynn and Kugel, it's accelerating to a really great degree. And in fact, in, in 2017, you know, the, the Lynn and Kugel uh, in your article says that, you know, he sent this email about big, bold ideas. And, and his proposal was like cutting the VA uh, central office by like 35%, like almost eliminating homeless programs, uh, suicide prevention, all these things in order to funnel these things into these kind of weird private care entities. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, you're right. I mean, it it has been around for a while. And I talked to a guy who used to be a DOD who was like, who was sort of, you know, pushed on this this video game treatment and, and looked at the science and it showed that it was not any more effective than just sort of like conventional psychotherapy, but they bought all of this equipment because there was pressure and now it's, you know, sitting in a broom closet somewhere. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's what's so frustrating too about Lonnie Kugel's approach is he, he is disregarding the more systemic issues that make veteran suicide more likely. I mean, like, you know, there's so much stuff that could be done. Buying, you know, giving gun locks to families with veterans, addressing homelessness and economic conditions. I mean, like, if you can get vets transitioned to the civilian world with a good job, good mental health care, that really helps stave off deep depression, PTSD, flare-ups, and suicide. 
But yeah, for Line and Kugel, it's just sort of about the big shiny toy in the room and very little acknowledgement of, of the, you know, sort of wraparound services that are required to keep veterans from hurting themselves. I was having a conversation actually with some of my friends about this um, and how, I mean, I guess it's been going on for a while, but specifically this moment we're at, you could have the most like airtight argument with all of the scientific facts presented before you. And it just doesn't matter uh, for some of these types. Like you specifically have shown, I mean, in this article, there's innumerable evidence that shows how hyperbaric treatment has been debunked, um, how the um, the brain zapping is complete pseudoscience. And, and this stuff is available for all of the uh, the guys who are running the show to including uh, Leinenkugel and they just don't care. And the fact that, I mean, Leinenkugel is so brazen, as you mentioned earlier, with saying that, you know, I've been essentially whipped by the lobbyists over the past <laughs> year. So this is why I'm pursuing this now. And the system just keeps uh, going along in that fashion. And it's just, it makes you wonder, like, what is it going to take for, you know, some actual, like, scientific sense uh, to come into the picture here? And, of course, it seems it's really a, until we actually wrest political power from these types and hopefully, you know, with Bernie Sanders getting elected, something akin to that, it's like this insanity is just going to continue to persist. And, and it's just absolutely you know, horrifying and inhumane because of the second and third order effects that result on veterans because of these uh, types of things happening. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and uh, the folks that are peddling these treatments without any science behind them are really exploiting an incredibly vulnerable population. Like if you've gone to the VA or received some sort of mental health care that didn't work, you will be desperate. Like you, you, you obviously want to remediate your symptoms. Um, and, you know, corporations understand that and they know that if they sell you on something and they can, you know, put a splashy brochure together or, you know, sort of fudge the science and run their own weird, flawed clinical trial that they can they can make a lot of money off this. And, and, and you know, the sort of the health and welfare of veterans does not seem to uh, to come into the calculation with them. Yeah. And really, and short of. Bernie Sanders getting elected and 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 being able to kind of dramatically change the the equation here. I mean, really, all we have to rely on at this moment, because you know, there's a couple of years before the election, is is really just veterans' action, collective action on our own. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I mean, the the VA scandal, the first the original VA scandal th- during the Vietnam War, where they're like running because kind of like really dark torture prisons for all the paralyzed veterans coming home. It was this organized movement of veterans in wheelchairs and paralyzed veterans who exposed and fought that. I mean, I think the only reason that the PTSD epidemic and the suicide epidemic was addressed in the way it was, was collective actions by veterans uh, protesting at the VAs, organizing together. Just like today, the, the movement against the VA privatization is being led by Veterans for Peace, American Legion, other veterans, taking it upon ourselves to take collective action to, to fight these things. And I think, Jasper, your work is um, providing really important ammunition to that because it's like, I thought I understood the issue and then uh, uncover, looking at all of your research and, and what you've uncovered by talking to people and going to these meetings and all that really diligent journalistic work is kind of puts it in a new light and, you know, it kind of makes us realize it's not a kind of a more serious level than we even thought. And we thought it was bad already. Yeah, no, I really appreciate those kind words. And yeah, I mean, you know, veterans are 
lucky in that they still do wield a lot of political power in this country. I mean, some of it, it, it can seem sort of shallow. And I think depending on the politician you're speaking to, it can be. Um, many times they just prefer to make pronouncements than, than take any real substantive action. But, you know, uh, organizations like the the American Legion, the Veterans of Foreign War, some of the younger ones like IAVA, I mean, they, they do good work and um, certainly have, if not stopped, some of these poison pill measures around VA privatization, weakened them and, and certainly got in some additional benefits for veterans along the way. Um, but, you know, there's... It, it, it's really hard now when, you know, post 9-11 vets come back and it can feel weird to join the Legion or the VFW yeah. just because of the, you know, the different, the, the generational differences. And so it, it is a bit more splintered, the, the scene that it, than it's ever been, which makes it harder to consolidate power. Plus, when you have, you know, major healthcare companies and CVA on the other end, it's, it's, it's a really uphill battle. But I think it's possible certainly to uh, to engage in this fight effectively and uh, and win back some of these rights and ensure that the GI Bill, the VA, healthcare services, so much of what the department does is, uh, is kept strong for generations to come. You've been listening to Jasper Craven, an investigative journalist covering the Veterans Affairs, whose work appears in the New York Times at War, most recently The Intercept. You can follow him on Twitter at Jasper underscore Craven. You've been listening to Eyes Left with Spencer Rapone. And Mike Preisner. All of our content is free for everyone, but we can't do it without your help. So if you support this project, go to patreon.com slash eyes left to make it possible to continue. Be sure to follow us on social media at eyes left pod. And if you're in the military, a military family member or veteran and want to share your story, report problems and mismanagement, or need advice or assistance knowing your rights, including your right to get the hell out or refuse deployment, please write us at eyesleftpod at gmail.com. Eyes left.